0: History, lecture number 33, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Sad news today. It, we are... I usually try to finish up a topic. Uh, yesterday, um, we were in the middle of something. Didn't quite work out as planned. Um, we were talking about the particularly despicable king in the form of Yehoyokim ben Yehoshihu, um the third to last king ever, legitimate king from the house of David, who was so cruel, he told the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that my predecessors thought they knew how to make you angry. They know nothing. I really know how to make you angry. And uh, so he set about doing as he personally murdered Uriah ben Shemaiah, pulled the hairs off the beard of Yirmiyahu, the great prophet, and did other atrocities. Now, um, the Gemara Sanhedrin tells us that the ruler of Bavel, the new up-and-coming empire, his name is still Baladan, He was the one who said messengers to Chizkiyahu many years ago. They apparently had great longevity, great achrichus yamim. These uh, these Babylonian kings. He had a certain. Say it again. It could have been sometimes excellent observation. We saw with Paro that Paro was the common generic name. We saw that also Hadad was if Aram was the generic name of all the kings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm exactly and no, it's he, it's right sometimes they share names for sure that's absolutely viable although I think okay there's reason to suggest that he's the same person he had a he had a scribe by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who in history we last encountered Nebuchadnezzar um, as a young survivor on the battlefield Having besieged Jerusalem under the, with the, in the army of Sanhieriv, when the miracle of the uh, victory over the over Ashur over the Assyrians took place many years prior, well now we find the Vilhachnetzer as the scribe of Baladan, uh who now um, the story tells tells us that in one battle he ran three steps in honor of a Kaddish Hu, and a Kaddish Hu never won to forget uh, um, a a merit a credit in somebody's names um in somebody's name grants Nebuchadnezzar a great reward he allows him to have three generations of Malchus and uh he overtakes his master he arises as the new king of Bavel. Bavel initially had been a vassal state under Ashur, which was the dominant empire, but we've already gotten used to the the ebb and flow of the ancient world. One empire rises, another one falls, and on and on and on. Only Am Yisrael persists in history, paraphrasing Mark Twain. And um, and now and now Bavel, which was inferior to Asher, um, allows Nebuchadnezzar to rise up, conquer. Ninveh, the capital of, of, of Ashur, and then proceed to conquer um, the rest of the major countries in the ancient world. And now, Babel rises as the new uh, massive empire, the superpower of the ancient world. What are you gonna say? Uh, even, the, even the Jews rose and, fought, rose and fell. Right, never right, fell but we never, fell we never we and completely and fell. And that's didn't right, rise and fall. that's right. Fair enough, fair enough. We've, we've definitely had our own ebb and flow in history. Um, Interestingly, the fact that Medrish and Yakut Shimoni points out the major reason a Bar Baruch gave Nebuchadnezzar and the ancient empire of Bavel, Babylon, this great honor was not for Nebuchadnezzar personally himself, but rather to honor Klal Yisrael. Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Okay, so it's really to honor the Jewish people. was Syria very fair that? Syria? Oh, so you want to say it's like to get, to get the payback time from Syria? That's nice. That's not what the Medjur suggests, but I like it. And it was, that's certainly plausible. But there's a bigger reason oh, we why we make Bavel not only an empire, but the great superpower of the world and arguably one of the greatest empires of all time. For sure. That could be also. But there's a better reason, the Medjur says, as follows When a Baruch Hu punishes us, he doesn't just punish us. He punishes us in spectacular, global, grandiose so can, style. So, can, so we should see this is a Kaddish Baruch who's doing, and if he's going to punish us, he's going to do it with a, with a, with the with a flash, the uh, with a, flur- with a uh, flourish. Um, that was the word. With a flourish, and that's and that's really a kavod to Am Yisrael. And indeed, we find this that all the nations that subjugate and rule Klal Yisrael, from Egypt to Ashur to Bavel to Mada, Yavan, and Rome um, will all be not just a temporary fly-by-night, fly, fly but really a, a massive empire of distinction. And that's, that's, that's how we're supposed to understand where this. is, is modern-day Modern-day Bavel, I'll be passing out maps when Bavel becomes much more central to our story, but modern-day Bavel takes up the area that we think of as Iraq, Centrally, Iraq, and then bleeding over into areas that we think of as Iran, and and north into the former Soviet Union, and and over maybe a little bit into Syria, give or take. Because the I mentioned this observation before about ancient borders were more mostly theoretical. The, remember this idea? When I passed out the maps. We did this one time. That you weren't here yet, David. But the but the idea of borders in the pre-modern world is theoretical, but not so meaningful because. They're all porous. If you can't man those borders, if you can't provide some kind of electrical surveillance, a border is as good as uh, the fence to uphold it, and they're constantly shifting over time. That's why I say it's approximately the area of Iraq. And now Nebuchadnezzar is arisen, is the dominant force in the world, and he's moving in, and he sees Klal Yisrael, and he's swooping down, um, and he overtakes (laughs) Judea. Judea, Yehuda, and the king, after his wicked 11 years in power, um, he falls to the new empire, Bavel, and the king decides to capture the king. But Yehuyakim, the third to last king of the Jews, is so spoiled, he's such a Mephunak, as you say in Hebrew, that as they put him in chains, he dies on the spot. That's the image we're meant to have. It was a guy who's so wicked, but the wickedness is so, is, is, is so fragile. He's one of these, he's like that, uh, I don't know, my image is the bully in high school that when the, you know, the pencil neck geek finally has the courage to stand up to him, the bully, you know, uh, oh, or Wizard of Oz, is, Oz, if you must, if you're looking for such things. And the wizard who really behind is, is just this little nothing behind the scenes, so he's, he's all spectacle and no substance. And when they put him in the chains, the man dies. And this is the part that uh, some of you remembered yesterday, the Kazdim, Kazdim, like, as in Ur-Kazdim, as we just had in Parsha, Kazdim are the, local, um, the locals, that's how we refer to locals from Bavel. So I'll be using the term Kazdim, Babylonians, it's, they're, they're synonymous. So the Kazdim take Jehoiakim's corpse Cut it into pieces and scatter them around Eretz Yisrael, thereby fulfilling Hashem's promise that his corpse, his body, will never see proper burial, which is uh, terrible in terms of long term. You know that even the wicked in the afterlife get something, get some kind of portion. A person who is not given proper burial or alternately a person who is cremated, uh, tell your friends and family who don't know this cremation is devastating to the neshama in ways that uh, i mean, Khazal spell it out, although we don't, really, we don't really understand what the implications are, not knowing what, what, what awaits us in Olam precisely but it's bad news, unless a person is against his will, it's called an anus and he gets cremated in Hasa Sholem, as we, as we see in history, um, in the gas chambers at Auschwitz and, and, and elsewhere, if that's the source of cremation, then that, 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 that's not the person's doing. But if they consciously will such a fate, uh, they're in trouble, and Ilyaki is in what, trouble. What is the family? Uh, we, uh, the, the, I don't know if you remember this. You remember there was a family who also had that fate with one exception? The family of Yeravam ben Nevat also ne- never got proper burial. So we see it repeatedly at a few junctures in history, that this, this uh, terrible fate, and I think, I think the message is straightforward. Somebody who abuses Olam Haze, his fate, as it were, is, is, is going to be to never really leave Olam Haze. It's, gonna be, it's somehow going to be tied uh, tragically to Olam Haze. Um, the Gemara says, as terrible a fate as this is, It's better than the fate that befell his son, Yehoyachin, and that's a tricky one because the names sound oh so similar. Keep track of this. I wrote it on the board yesterday. Remember, there's Yehoyachin, who's the oldest son of Yoshiyahu, and now there's Yehoyachin, Yehoyachin's son. It's the grandson. You remember this? So First is Yoachaz, the middle brother, followed by Yoachim, now followed by his son, the penultimate king. Pe- penultimate is a fancy word for second to last. And then the last king will be his uncle, the little, the little brother, Tzikiahu ben Yoshiahu. So now Yochin is now installed as the next king. We'll talk about him in a moment. But first, a quick flash, I think they call them flash forward. A flash forward. Uh, we have this from the Gemara in Sanhedrin. A great Amora by the name of Chia Bar-Avua, not the same Chia uh, the Tana, but Rabihia Bar-Avua, years later, we're talking probably sometime into the third century of the common era, is visiting the ruins of Yerushalayim. And as he's walking outside, he finds a skull cast outside the the city gates and he sees the skull and he assumes it must be some Jew, some tragedy, and so he buries it, as we should do. By the way, if you find such body parts, it's a big mitzvah to give them proper burial. You know that's what um, Zaka does. Uh, they go around, uh, let's say, after a terrorist attack where there is a suicide bomber, for example, and body parts get strewn all over the scene of the crime. So the volunteers at Zaka go around collecting, trying to find every last bit of body part to give a proper burial. That's the halacha. And, and as we said, it has abstract spiritual consequences for the, for the deceased. Whatever they can get. Everything. Everything that should be. Covenant mm-hmm, covenant. Everything should be properly buried. We call it covered of mace. And Rabbi Chia Barabua finds this skull outside Jerusalem, and he and he gives it proper burial. And then he comes a little bit later, and what do you know? The same skull is out of the ground. And so he says, "Well, that's odd." And he gives it another burial. And the thing keeps popping out of the ground. What are you going to do with it? Until he finally realizes, "Aha!" Yehoyakim ben Yoshiahu, I finally met you. Now remember, we, yeah, we meet again. Although he never met in the first place, um, that was the nature. I keep saying this. They were walking around carrying Jewish history on their shoulders and their back pockets. They knew everything. To the point that they could recognize this little detail of history was something that was as familiar to him as Chasam Shalom. This generation is familiar with the new, the latest apps uh, that can be used. Am I using a track? Uh, does that even date me by using that expression, or am I, am I now? Am I now? I'm officially contemporary. I'm modern. Okay. Next year, it's old fashioned. I'm sure. Uh, I can never. St- I, ne- I can never uh, keep myself updated enough. Um, anyway, he knew it was it was Yo Yochim. And so he uh, he wraps it up, and he realizes there's nothing I can do. This corpse does not get buried; it's a divine decree. So he does the next best thing, and he wraps it up carefully in silk and places it in a box. What's his motivation? His motivation is this king was despicable; he was wicked. But you know, Hashem's punished him. It's not my job in the world to punish him or to, to cast judgment. It's kind of what I was saying about Rav Shlomo before we started the, the, the tape. And it was, Hashem judges him. I just have to do my job. I can't know for sure. And I do know that he's Mashiach Hashem. Mashiach just meaning the anointed of Hashem. He served as a Melech. He was from the Davidic line. He's from base David. As wicked as Yehoiakim was, I can't do anything. So Rabbi Bar Abba starts walking around carrying this box. And uh, it, let's say it attracts a little bit of attention, and uh, people start noticing. And one person who definitely notices and, ta- and 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 writes it down is his own wife. And he doesn't. She doesn't know the pshat exactly. And someone tells her. And I always wonder what the pshat is on this someone making trouble. But the someone whispers to her as a troublemaker, uh, tells her that you know what? That's your husband's first wife, who he's never gotten over. <laughs> So when he's not looking, Rabbi Barbu Barabuah is not looking, and I refer you—it's the same Rabbi Chira Barabuah uh, that's subject of a. No, it's not. I, I confused another another personality. Is he? It's Pei Dalin with base in Kedushin. That's a Kedushin. One of these is Kedushin, isn't it? Is it? No, maybe not. Somebody's doing Kedushin here. Anyway, I think it's the same Rabbi, Bar- Rabbi, Rabbi Chira Barabuah who has a really interesting story about him and his wife in uh, in Kedushin. In any case, um, she takes the box with the skull and she throws it in the incinerator. And um, Rabbi Chia walks in and he sees what's happened and he says, that's what we call mida keneged mida. The same King who takes the Holy Sefer, which, what book did, did the, we said this at the end of yesterday, what book did you say? The Sefer, Eicha. Echa by Yermiawa Navi and burns it, that his fate should be that his the skull that would refuse to be buried in the holy land of the, the holy soil of Eretz Israel that ultimately will be consumed by fire. Um, the Gemara concludes that actually this counts as his Kapara and that and explains there that's why he's not listed as those who has no portion who, who's not in the list of kings without a portion of the world to come. That's how our Gemara in Sanhedrin concludes. Um, Interesting, there's another source in the Yerushalmi, in the in Peah, that lists Yehoyakim among the kings who have no portion in the world to come. So they're conflicting lists on this one, and we've been keeping tabs. Yehoyakim does get an honorable mention or a dishonorable mention uh, over there in the Yerushalmi. Yeah, Aryeh? Um, how can it possibly be a Mahara
1: It's irrelevant
0: how things happen in the world. We understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the master puppeteer, the master working all of us little marionettes. We say, A-Kol He has his way so that even though she has her own bonos and let's say what she did was wrong, it was a sin, it was improper, that's between her and a Baruch Hu and she'll get whatever she deserves for that. But in the end, the fact that she was the agent of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to finally incinerate the skull of Yehoyokim, that was his design. That was the Ganesh Barupu's grand plan. The school would have definitely Tumas smase, yeah. They were apparently not Kohanim. Some people, even if non Kohanim, were careful not to contract Tuma. Are you guys hot in here? Yeah. Not hot. Open, get some air back there. Is that, just make sure that the, um, Eli like to care for the bottom corner. Do you want air conditioning? Elon, Elon doesn't like it. That's why, that's why I know my audience a little bit. And it's not so, so hot. I just don't want you to be uncomfortable. Um, here's the last important, pretty significant detail from the 11-year rule of yo At the very end, when he was meant to be carried off in chains, but he died before they could put him in chains, um, Nebuchadnezzar captures a small portion of Klal Yisrael and leaves them up for the first of three exiles. Does this sound familiar? What's familiar about that where have we seen such a thing very recently three exiles the northern kingdom if you remember didn't fall at once they too were subjected to three phases of exile otherwise my focus about where who was actually taken up which tribes left first but we'll see the final destruction of the first temple will happen in three phases we've just witnessed the first it's called in history the children's exile golus <laughs> Hayeladim Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. He captures the, the, the finest children that he can find from the Jewish people. They have to fit several criteria. They have to be wise. They have to be handsome. They, have, they can't have any mumin, which means they have to be unblemished. He takes them back to Bavel, castrates them, making them eunuchs, which was the fashion in the ancient world. The king wanted his assistants to not be, let's say, personally threatening understand in which case they became eunuchs that's what eunuch means they were not threatening they were in hebrew called sarisim and as such um they were trained and groomed to be assistants in the king's palace they were given kazdim books and they were taught the kazdim language to be expert in everything babylonian um this is all brought down in a certain sefer in the tanakh because uh, this sefer in tanakh actually is a story that has to do with one of these Famous eunuchs, his name Daniel yeah, Daniel was, was and his friends, his friends some of the names maybe should be familiar, um, uh, some of us were in, were in Slichos this morning, the last day of Bahab, um, and we, we mentioned the names of, the, of three of the friends, Hanania, Mishael, and Azariah were among the friends. Um, they were and they were taken back for this first exile. Make a note because they're gonna figure very prominently in the story that unfolds in the in the coming days. Nebuchadnezzar um, also no fool also made off with several of the kalim, the holy vessels from the base of Mikdash, and with that falls Yo rule. His son, Yo or Yechonia, as he's called in the, in the very beginning of Megillus Esther. Anybody who knows the Megillah might recognize Begolish Yechonia, yo Yochin. Um, he rules for exactly three months, ten days, count them, in the year adjusted to our calendar, as I gave you on the timeline. Um, some of you still owe me an email. David, I'm supposed to give you all these uh, Xeroxes so you can have them. But on the timeline, anybody have the timeline handy? Um, it's in the year 433 before the Common Era yo is a chip off the old block, and that's not a compliment. Meaning, he follows in Dad's ways. He's evil through and through. The pasuk says he does evil in Hashem's eyes, and that's why his rule lasts so briefly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar announces, "I will not destroy the base of Mikdash if you will deliver the new king to my hands." This shakes the evil, the wicked yo to the core. He climbs after committing terrible atrocities. He's now newly repentant, and in a famous <laughs> scene, Yoyachin climbs to the roof of the Kod- Kodesh Hakadoshim, the Holy of Holies. What's called the Dvir. You know the scene; it's one of my favorites. Climbs to the roof of the Kodesh Hakadoshim. He takes the keys they used to be keys to the Holy of Holies, and he, in a, in a grand gesture of submission to Kodesh Baruch Hu, he says to Kanish Baruch Hu, we apparently, as I'll quote, the, ver- I'll quote the, the expression, he says, As you no longer consider us to be worthy custodians to your holy house, here, please take the keys that you've entrusted to us until now. And he throws them up in the, up in the, up in the air, throws them up to the sky, and, oh, didn't happen this time. He throws them up in the sky, and what do you know? Next are so two versions of what happens. A heavenly, dissevered hand swoops down from the heavens and catches them. That's one version. The other version is: This is what I was attempting, but didn't, didn't work out. The keys just remain suspended mid-air. I'd see. i take either version, honestly. If I were, if I were witnessing, that's um, a sign that the Kaddish Baruch was accepted. His initial step towards tshuva. Uh, I forgot one detail. That hand that comes from the heavens is a fiery hand. Um, as he's leaving through a special gate, he makes tshuva, he, he beseeches, he cries to Hashem, he calls out to him, please accept my tshuva. When the second temple will be rebuilt, it's a gate right outside the main complex of the Azara. It's a gate that will bear his name. The Jewish people actually honor the wicked king, because you know what? We like people who are wicked, who turn their lives around and become tzaddikim. And that's Yehonia, he's, he's an example of a Baal tshuva it's maybe too little too late, but he does it. Now he and his, and 10,000 men are taken in the second phase of Galus, the second diaspora, at the end of this, the first temple period, um, which the Pasuk refers to as Kol, is a, this is even more famous than the first one. The first one is the children's exile, that's Daniel, Hananiah, Zahar, Mishael, this one is called Kol Gibureh the Kol Harashu Mazger, which means all of the valiant men of war and all the craftsmen and locksmiths. And you think if you've never heard this before, big deal, craftsmen, locksmiths. But we understand Chazal interpret the pasuk as referring to the great. Who are the great locksmiths who can unlock the doors of of Tyre? The sages. It's a code word for the great luminaries of the time and among the sages famously, Asher Gallus Yechonia. I, I gave this to you earlier today if you were paying attention. I'm always planting these hints, trying to try to keep you um, alert to what's going on. Who goes out with this particular Galus? It's the first of many trips back and forth that he takes into Bavel and back and forth. His name is Mordechai. Mordechai is taken for the first time into exile uh, we're going we're to hear a lot from Mordechai in, in the coming days. Asher hogla im Yehonia, as, as in the beginning of the second chapter of Esther. Um, Mordechai, uh, there is a source that he had, Navua, but that's not his prominence. Um, in this in this exile, we have a, we do have a navi, a very very great famous navi who gets his initial navi in Eretz Yisrael because it doesn't work otherwise. You know that um, you can only get navi if you're situated in Eretz Israel, But in this case, it's very ironic because his famous navi takes place takes place almost exclusively out, well with some exceptions outside of the land of Israel. Who am I thinking of? i Jeremiah. No, no. Yerub Yahu has been with us for a while already. Israel. We've been talking about him for a while. No, no. There's another great, famous Navi. One of the top Navim of all times. No, no. You're way ahead of time. So, the not coming to the beginning of the second temple. He's got a book, a long book, in the Tanakh. <inaudible> Yechezkel. No, Yechezkel. I refuse. No Ezekiel here. Okay, <laughs> Yechezkel. Yechezkel, the Navi, is also in the, what's called the Gullus of the, of the Harish and the Mazger. Of the craftsmen and the uh, and the locksmiths, um, they and basically the cream of the crop, the greatest Jews, the greatest luminaries, from this period, are all taken into exile in Bavel. And you have to appreciate this. Don't walk out just quite a second. Just get this insight and then leave. Then you're gone. We um, just get this one bit. This exile is a bracha in disguise. Why is it a brach in disguise? It's probably one of the greatest acts of Chesed the Baruch could have done at this increasingly dark phase in history. Because it, kind of it establishes the Jews. Uh, it's one of the important insights of history. They go to Buville, they set the infrastructure, they set the tone of what Bavu going to be, Bubble becomes defined by Torah, by these great sages, and that's why is unique of all the exiles that exist for Klal Yisrael, it becomes the capital of Klal Yisrael for over, over a millennium. Because of this act, it's tested by, and what is it like in the Torah? We're gonna to see this in a few weeks in the Torah. When they go down to Egypt, Yaakov is Machpi, first this is after the whole first interplay between on. Yosef and, the, and, 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 and his brothers, he sends Yehuda go to Goshen, look at the Pesukim, look at Rashi there, he says, you go to Goshen before all of us come down, you've got to establish all the Batei Medrash. You've got to build the study halls and the shuls to make sure first there's Tyra where there's Tyra. half Torah will travel, where there's Tyra. they're Jews, get out of here. Um, and that's what's happened here, that's the second exile, and that's what makes Bavel, uh, the beginning of Bavel, as the great, mightiest of all Jewish exiles, um, with the center in, anybody know the initial capital city in Bavel? Babylon. It becomes a bit, ba- later on also great. Naharda, Nahardea, it's the center. Were um, is that Shushan is? I thought Babylon was a city Shushan. Uh, Shushan. is different. But yeah, but that was the capital. Shushan's, in Paris, Shushan's the, the political capital. Naharda becomes the Jewish capital in uh, Bavel. Also wait, Babylon and Persia are different. Um, um, Persia takes over from Babylon It's the same place uh, Same place, different kingdom um, When I talk about capital, i meant the Jewish center Now, is the Jewish center um, They build a shul The first shul that we know of in history There were certainly other shuls like it This is the first prominent shul that they, caused, they called Shaf the Yosiv We'll get back to it, we'll talk about it and its function um, They built the yeshiva uh, it was built by none other than the wicked king, who now made Shuva by Yechonia. Uh, it was headed; the Rosh Yeshiva was Yehezkel Hanavi. Um, it lasts. That great yeshiva in Nahardah is the great Nahardah that features really prominently in the entire Bavli Shas, and even the Yerushalmi mentions it. Uh, it's the great yeshiva. It lasts over almost seven hundred years. Um, until it's destroyed in the years 259 in the Common Era, 12 years after Rav dies. Same Rav we learned about in, a lot in, in, in the Gemara Makos earlier today. Um, so uh, it's, that's, that's over, if you picture this, the yeshiva starts around this time in history and, and carries on almost 700 years. Anybody familiar with the running of the yeshiva? The only thing you can say in response to that is, what a deficit. Payroll for seven hundred years. You're not going to have a lot of profits. Um, okay, the oldest yeshiva. Does it matter if it's moved several times? If it's moved several times, then I would say the mirror. The Mir has vetek, has vetek. But if you want to say old is also the oldest continuously. I mean, the, yeah, the Mir, you could say. You could say Chevron is up there. If you want to trace this, you have Chevron Because Hebron, cause Hebron is, a, is, a, is a different name for what was previously the Knessus Beis um, Yisrael uh, from, from, uh, from um, Kovno. What's that? Mir started in the early, I should not able to leave you a precise date, if I'm not mistaken. It's 18... 15, 16, something like that. And I, I, I uh, plead the fifth. I, I don't know if I'm right on that. You can check, fact check me. Uh, but it's early 19th century, Mir Yeshiva. Anyway, Narada no, is a very important Yeshiva too. Yol um, Yochin is replaced by the last king of the Jews. His name is Tzidkiyahu. He rules another. He rules 11 years. Now the Pasuk, who is Tzidkiyahu and how are we supposed to relate to him? seems like a good person, his name seems to uh, you know, uh, give over a, a certain righteousness. But the Posuk says, ra Hashem He did evil in the eyes of Hashem. But Chazal say, not so bad. They see it more as a sin of omission rather than commission. It's a fancy expression, you understand what that means? It means, in other words, it, did, it wasn't that he did anything proactively bad. It was he could have done better. He should have been more proactively good, and therefore he's faulted. And the the, the Chazal say, "Shahaya <speaking in Hebrew> He should have protested the excesses of his time, and he didn't protest enough. And for that, he should have known better. Um, he was like his ancestor Yehuda. Remember back the original Yehuda uh, when it says, Yehuda <speaking in Hebrew> the beginning of, of the uh, near the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev. Yehuda went down from his brothers the brothers blamed Yehuda for throwing Yosef into the pit and ultimately selling him they turned to him and they said if we had realized how badly Dab would have been upset by Yosef's by, by, by disappearance, we would have never done this and Yehuda, you didn't have to tell us to sell him down the down river to the Egyptians, you could have told us to restore him and we would have listened to you Yehuda's was a sin of omission as well. He should have told him he had the stature and the respect he commanded, the respect of his brothers. They would have listened to him. Same with Sid Yehuda's descendants. There's a certain quality we find in the seed of Yehuda that, uh, that, that is persistent. <clears throat> um, Nebuchadnezzar now makes a deal. He craftily has not yet moved in for the kill, he has not totally destroyed the state of Yehuda. He said, you're, you're now my, you know, puppet state, vassal puppet state. I'm going to make you a deal. You can stay in power as long as you behave yourself. I've got your nephew. I had your brother before he died in chains. Uh, and I'll have you too for dinner if I choose. But I don't choose right now. You instead will make an oath. He took out a Sefer Torah. He made him take an oath by a Sefer Torah, which is a practice that persists in halacha. We do that too. It's where the non-Jews get it. You ever go to those courtroom dramas and they say, you take out a Bible? Where do you think they got that from? They got it from from our text. That they took out a Sefer Torah. You're not allowed to rebel against me. You play by the rules. You be a nice boy, and I'll let you continue ruling over Yehuda. And the king takes a vow and he breaks it. And the Gbarna Darim explains see... It was really hard to respect Nebuchadnezzar. We haven't yet learned a lot about him. We're going to. He's the subject of a lot of very colorful stories. Nebuchadnezzar was a boor, slow lowlife. I don't know what words we'd use for him today. Scuzz of the earth. Just he, among other things, Sikiyahu happened to personally witness the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He, he took a live rabbit and ate it. They had no humanity, no, no sense of propriety, complete animal. And so, and so, when you make an oath to such an individual, Tzit Ke'au felt, I don't have to keep such an oath. I can do what I want. I'm, I'm leading the nation of Hashem. He, he appeals to the Sanhedrin, who finds a technical halakhic way to get around his oath, and it's Matir, the oath, meaning it undoes the oath. You're now free of the oath. And indeed, Tikyao turns to Egypt as an ally lets rebel against Bova. And Egypt <laughs> is eager. Egypt does not want submission to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went around the world conquering different nations. The Gemara in Shabbos tells this. The Gemara says it, folks. I don't make it up. The Gemara tells us that every nation, every little state that the Nebuchadnezzar would conquer, uh, his way of, sho- of, of making them submissive was to take the king, and have his way. No, no, not kill him. Something else. That's what Nebuchadnezzar... I mean, talk about a disgusting individual. Right? That's how he behaved and it was not coming from any... it wasn't because he had certain in, in, in uh, therapy terms they call it same-sex attraction. It wasn't from that. He just had no sense of humanity, of dignity. And that was his way of showing that I'm the new, I'm the new king. You don't, you don't, you don't start up with me, yeah. and and Egypt did not want to fall, and so and so, uh, makes a pact with them. But there was the, there's also about Israel though that it didn't happen to, it didn't happen to the king. It didn't happen to, it's that's true. He managed right. Yeah. He had his way with lots of people, and we'll see. There are clever Jews who get around this. Okay, with with uh, Daniel, you're thinking of Daniel. Uh, I mean, it's in, there it's in the same job. It's right, like, right, 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 more right, right. So. right, for sure, for sure And, and Daniel is going to have a very clever way Of avoiding the king Stay tuned um, Nebuchadnezzar finds out And exacts vengeance And and seeks to get at Tzitkiahu And the Sanhedrin And he will Now meanwhile, we're leading up I don't know if you have this feeling I have a sinking, a uh, lump in my throat, and a sinking feeling of doom as we approach our own uh, disaster. Meanwhile, a great man sits in jail, having been jailed by Yehoyokim a couple, couple kingships ago. Who's the man in jail? Our hero, Yirmiyahu. If it was up to him, he would not have permitted Tzitkiaw's rebellion, but Tzitkiaw wasn't asking, and he wasn't in a place where he could assert his authority and, 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 and speak up so he's rotting away in jail and Zikiyao, to his credit releases him um, and Yermiao gets out and like a good prophet starts preaching the opposition he says, no, the king is wrong, don't rebel and he's fearless like the best of the prophets, he says it like it is um, and the people say well what do you expect us to do? we're supposed to sit around while Babu comes and moves in and he's going to take over and who knows what he's going to do to our holy temple and Yumi says, yeah, Yermiao says, yeah Mm -hmm. sometimes the right thing to do is not always the most popular thing to do but you gotta do the right thing anyway Uh, I told a personal story along those lines about uh, meeting up with an old friend and uh, okay it was an awkward moment but sometimes the right thing to do is not going to be the popular thing to do and you still have to do the right thing and they said well what should we do he says you know what you should do some excellent bestsellers I want you to take them at the time they didn't have it wasn't written up in the book form that we had but he said go take out Torah and sit and learn that's what you should do. Show a Baruch Hu how sincere you are about keeping his Torah, learning his Torah and practicing his Torah and that's what that's that's what's left for you uh, to, to do. Uh, now remember the people he's speaking to are not the cream of the crop, they're not the harish and the mazger who had already been exiled, so they're not accepting this very well. So he has, they, te- they, they say to him how do you expect us to support ourselves? We're supposed to live off. We're supposed to eat the pages of the Torah that we're learning. What do, you, what do you want from us? It's a great scene and it's very relevant for us today as people struggle with how you're supposed to learn Torah, but you got to get a job and so on. So the Navi has the greatest word, word, wordless rebuke of all time. He produces and somehow he manages to get it back because it's been underground for a couple centru- for a couple of uh, decades. Uh, but he manages to find this. I guess a Navi has certain powers. He produces for them a certain flask containing, well, not Coca-Cola, uh, but I had to use some kind of a prop. Um, what's in the container that he produces for them? He produces the jar of manna, the manna, and he says, "When you're doing a Kadosh Baruch Hu's bidding, like the Jews in the deserts, a Kadosh Baruch Hu takes care of you. He showers manna from heaven, or whatever he showers from heaven, uh, and he'll take care of you. You do, you do what Hashem asks from you, and he'll take care of all the rest." I did, I did. Now you have holy Coca-Cola now. You felt the holiness. Um, this is an odd time in history. We're coasting towards an end. The good, the best Jews are gone. Some of the good guys are back in Eretz Israel, and it's a mixture. And included among the motley assortment of Jews that we find are a bunch of Nevi'e Sheker, false prophets, who seem impressive? Seem to be talking a good game. They, there are a lot of prophets out there. How do you know you're going to go with? Who are the? Do you know the names? Who are the great prophets who exist now at this time in history? I already mentioned Yechezkel, but he's off in bubble at this stage. Now we have Miyahu. right? No, they did. They did not make a living, as we said on, on, on this at all. We can call them a, a, the the first original nonprofit organization. It's my joke. I make it. Too. Uh, yeah. Who else is around? What's that? nahum certainly he's probably near the end of his tenure who else uh he was one that elisha had revived he's still around he had longevity Chabakuk. who'd you say Oh, I said no no elisha's long gone he's died chagai's not yet more of the treasar no vadi has gone uh, gone he was in the north earlier no i'm thinking of um safania Tzafania is a major navi from this time, and I mentioned her already. Who's the female? Who's the great female navi at this time period? Huldah, talking oh, to the women, wrong, right? right? So these they have lots of legitimate navim, and they have illegitimate navim. The most famous, most prominent was a fellow by the name of Chanania Ben Azur. By the way, uh, you know of all the sins to commit, this is really one. In case you're getting any ideas, Chazal to go against Hashem, don't do this one. Uh, these guys are in deep trouble. Claiming to be prophets, speaking, being the mouthpiece of a Hashem, while saying the opposite, uh, their, their portion in the world to come is not a happy one. Um, and what do they do? How do you go? How do you get away with being a navi sheker? You tell the people what they want to hear. Want to hear. Kind of the way I described. Um, anybody heard my description of what Reform rabbis do? Not all of them, but most of them. Um, I mean, this is when I was working in a Reform synagogue. How do you? How do you make? Good money as a Reform rabbi. You tell the people who come to your shul. They're coming usually at Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and no, no other time of year. Um, you tell them, you know what makes a good reformed Jew? Uh, you know, you don't. You have to feel Jewish. You don't necessarily have to come to synagogue. You have to pay your dues in synagogue. You have to come. Let's say a Jew who comes maybe once a year, but feels. Strongly is a Jew. Somebody, supports the Somebody who supports Right. Who, let's say, gives money and writes large checks to the synagogue. That, in my book, is what makes a good Jew. Meanwhile, the people are sitting out in the in the in the uh, in the oh, in the stands. Yeah. And they're saying, "Hey, I like this rabbi. Yeah, he says it like it is. Let's you know, let's 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 our pair of membership dues for next year. I Meaning a classic. You know, tell them what they want to hear. By the way, there's some Orthodox rabbis like this too, because they think it is a popularity contest. And if you can make the people happy, then Wait, you... yeah, doesn't make it wrong. Now. It doesn't, it doesn't make it wrong. What makes it wrong is when it, when it goes against the Torah. Right. So. Right. You you're right. You're right. A, there is. Um, is there is. Um, rabbi Shlomo no said something along these. Th- rabbi Shlomo says a. Um, oh, oh, I'm going to miss this. It's such a great statement. I, I I can't misquote it. But it's. Uh, let me try. I get it right. Um, a rabbi, who is, everybody's friend and tells them all the things they always want to hear all the time. He's not a rabbi but a rabbi who totally alienates everybody with overly harsh words, Nishkin Mensch. He's not a mensch. So there is, maybe that's what you're getting at, Elon, yep. something along yeah, those like, lines? Fair enough. Is, okay. For sure. Sometimes you can't tell them because they're not receptive and we know we can't give tochacha to somebody who's not in the Kabul tochacha, can't rebuke a person who can't hear it. Fair enough. But at the same time, you can't lie. And this Khanania this Khanani ben Azur uh, lies and says, Hashem will not destroy the temple. And remember, they've been hearing they've been hearing generations already, of prophets telling them the exact opposite, that Hashem is on, on path to do exactly that. He's going to destroy the temple. If you don't repent, if you don't stop your sins. And now Hanani is getting up and telling them, "No, no, no, Hashem's not going to destroy the temple. He's going to destroy Bavel. Just wait. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be tortured, and you're going to be terrific. Just stay, keep doing whatever it is you like doing. That's what Hananiah ben Azur tells the people, and guess what? He's Mr. Man of the Hour. Um, <clears throat> now, picture this, the mental state. Klal Yisrael is in a collective state of denial. And it's a little bit shocking, because it wasn't that many years ago that the Northern Kingdom was was carted almost entirely into... Uh, not only exiled but at least until Mashiach comes what seems to be an eternal kind of an exile and they you know they, they even know people who talk about it uh, as if it was fresh in memory but they were in denial I think a classic state of denial a denial involves they counted on skusavos Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov how could Hashem really turn away turn, turn us away we've got the house of David a himself still intact um, Tsikyau uh, was still from that holy lineage, and probably more than anything else, the people said, "It's not conceivable that Hashem would destroy His own house," and they didn't believe it. Kind of like, I mean, we, we all have this too. I mean, the human, the, the it's almost a knee jerk reaction. Person passes a, a traffic accident, and the first thing is, oh, "Not me! It wouldn't happen to me. I'm you know because I'm a safe driver." That guy was a you know he did dangerous, foolish things on the road. Won't happen to me, and we go through life often at with that attitude, you know, it's never going to happen to me until sometimes it happens to me, and then I'm in shock. I, I remember having that initial reaction to the um, American take on the fall of the WTC and, the, and, and 9-11. They couldn't believe it. There was a sense of, of, of just, uh, of, of uh, this can't be happening here. We're Americans, don't they realize? It doesn't happen in America, only it did. And it crushed <coughs> that sense of... of um, <coughs> Entitlement and exclusivism that seems to characterize America. Only that they got over it. Now the, the entitlement, is, the sense of entitlement, is back. But the people live in state of denial, and that's maybe one of the reasons why they were less prone to believing their true prophets and more likely to believe the words of hanani Ben azur and the others. Amos had told them, "Have ha and But Betzion." They were the complacent back in Sion. But what we find at this phase in history is the beginning of the end is already in place. Yechezkel reveals to them the Shekhinah itself had started a progression of 10 exiles. Whatever that means, it's an abstract concept. But the Shekhinah, God's holy presence, that was manifest in the base of Mikdash for 410 years, not quite, had already begun receding very gradually. And the Gemara describes in Rosh Hashanah that the Shrina made 10 stops. It started on the Kaporus, and it moved the, the curtain and it moved to the Kruvim, to the, uh, to the cherubs above the Holy Ark. From one cherub to the next successively, it eventually moved as it were, out in that direction, it's so I can't tell you how gishmak it is to give over history while we're standing in Yerushalayim Yerakodesh. Because half of it, I feel like I can act out here. When I'm pointing over there, I'm literally pointing over there. What's over here in the horizon? Harha Zesin. This is all the Mount of Olives. The Shchina's last stop is in the Mount of Olives, where the kings and the kohen gadol's were anointed. And finally, at e- what's the purpose of this? The people are meant to take notice and say, and notice, when the shtina is absent, can't you understand? Your life is going to feel different. You're going to wake up in the morning. Do you ever know the difference between waking up in the morning, feeling refreshed and happy and bouncing out of bed? And never mind, I know you don't know that feeling. Uh, I take it back. Um, but there is such a, you can picture such a concept at least. Okay? Barak, tell them. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> the, uh, he's here before Presbyter's, he's every morning. The, uh, the, the, uh, there's a difference between that and waking up with a hangover. And the Jews were now getting up, as it were, with a proverbial hangover, and every notch, the Shina went into exile, the hangover got more intense. And you'd think they'd wake up and they'd say, Hey, what's going on? Wow, yeah, it feels terrible. And they did. And they said, eh, it was probably the, that 10-inch pizza you ate last night. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. And they'd go about their collective denial again. That's the way humans tend to be, and apparently that's the way it was back in these, back in these days each time a chance for more tshuva. What we learn from this is that the Chorban Beis mikdash was never inevitable, even down to the last minute. Had the Jews decided to look up and say, let's make tshuva, they could have turned it all around. And that's a message for them, and it's a message for us today. It's never too late. And that's what Hashem is telling us. The Babylonians set siege to the city. It lasts three and a half years. These are the last three and a half years of Sitkiah's reign. The Kazdim, we said already, they're the Babylonians. They breached the walls on which date? Do you know this? What is it? No, not the eighth. When do they breach the walls of the city? And it's a trick question, I have to admit. But we should know this. What, which day do we usually fast when we breach the walls oh, no, of the city? Of oh, no. No. No! Wait, it's, uh, it's Thank you. The 17th of Tammuz was when they breached the walls of, this, of the second temple. The first temple actually was the 9th of Tammuz. And later, when they were trying to reduce the number of days that we fasted, they grouped both tragedies under the 17th of Tammuz, even though technically, the, ni- the, the first temple, the, the walls were, when we say, well, as a fancy expression, breaching walls, they, you know, the walls of the city are meant to protect the city. They were casemate, which meant very, very thick, sturdy walls, and the Kasdim were able to breach the walls, crawl over the walls, and break into the city. Just because you broke into the city doesn't mean you conquered it, but it certainly means the end is in sight. It's still like the Tower of David. Mm-hmm. That's why these three weeks dead. in the summertime, when we, when we have increasing uh, strictnesses, we don't listen to music, and we don't have weddings, and so on, and then you get into the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, get increasingly sad, and, and because, because, because we, we know the, the end city. is in sight. Say it again. And we're about to lose the city. So they breached the walls on the 9th of Tammuz, the year is approximately 422 before the Common Era. It's the first sh- first year of the Shemitah cycle, meaning last year had been the Shemitah year, is not significant. And at sunset on the 9th of Av, they set fire to the Beit Hamikdash. It's a Motzei Shabbos. The Kohen, the Mishmar of the Kohen, is Yehoyariv. Remember the 24 groups of Kohanim that take turns every week in rotation. Yehoyariv. Yorevi was the, was the Koan on duty. Chazal record every detail with love, kind of like, speaking of the World Trade Center, do you remember where you were the day that the World Trade Center fell? And people, your, your parents can probably tell you where they were the day that Kennedy was shot. And there are these kind of turning points in a person's life. Maybe some of us will remember where we were standing when the terrorist crashed into, uh, into, into, the, into his victims a few days ago. Because certain key moments in a person's life remain indelible and we'll never forget them. And that's Korba Mesa Mikdash. The world changes when the temple was destroyed. To compound the tragedy, earlier Jews from the surrounding areas of Yehuda and Binyamin had come to Yerushalayim and flocked to Yerushalayim for safe refuge because they were terrified, they didn't want to be outside. They felt, well, you know, Hashem's not going to destroy his house, so it'll be safe there, so we'll go to Yerushalayim. They're all caught in the siege. Every vision of starvation, of atrocity that come from the klala, I refer you to Parshas B'chukosa and Parshas Kisavo, that describes horrific events. All of these start coming true. Women eating their children, Starvation, cruelty beyond imagination. At one point, our erstwhile our erstwhile allies down in Egypt, the Medrash tells us, set sail to try to help us. And Paro's vanguard is about is on its way is about to sail, and Hashem does a miracle. You know this, Hashem makes a miracle. They're sailing up the uh, the Mediterranean, and they're looking, and suddenly these big white Figures start floating to the surface. And they're looking what is that over there? I can't tell. Is that a corpse? Yeah, what about that one over there? And suddenly thousands of these corpses. And then horses. Corpses of horses start appearing. What is that? And they finally, somehow miraculously, a a, a basko, some kind of heavenly voice, alerts them and tells them. You know who those are? Those are your ancestors and their horses. You know what the Jews used to do to them? Referring to Kriyas Yamsuf. And the Egyptians said they did what to who to our ancestors, and they didn't an about face and turn back. Shem wasn't looking to send send the cavalry in to save Klal Yisrael if Klal Yisrael is not about to make tshuva. Navuzaradan, are you rushed? Can I keep you just a couple minutes late today so we can we can round this out? Nevuzaradan, who's called by the pasuk Rabatabachim, the chief butcher, Nevuzaradan is sent down to finally work on the destruction. And he comes into the area of the Azara, into the base of Mikdash compound itself. And he notices something very unusual on the courtyard floors in the base of Mikdash itself. Well, what is, that's blood. And that's so odd, is it bubbling? What is going on with that blood that's bubbling? 268 years, do you remember? 268 years it's been bubbling. Whose blood is it? (laughs) Zachariah ben Yehoyada Seven of in one day Nabiko and Gadol Murdered in cold blood because the Jews didn't like to hear the tohacha. And Nebuchadnezzar then asks He says, what is that? And the Jews said In classic Monty Python style I don't see anything, do you see anything? No, I don't see anything, what? They <laughs> don't get away with that uh, I just added that for drama uh, they try to conceal the story. Eventually, he threatens them. They confess. And he hears the whole sordid yeah. affair. And he, he finds out that that blood was never appeased. And he says, I'll appease it. So he says, really yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, bring me the kids. Which kids? You know, the kids were sitting there in Torah. So they bring the kids. He has them all massacred. Bring me the Kohanim, whoever's left in Yerushalayim. Bring me the young kohanim The Gemara describes it. 940,000 Jews are massacred in cold blood that day. Probably a Lashon Guzma, but probably not by much. Meaning a terrible massacre takes place and the blood through everything continues to seethe and is not appeased. And so Nebuchadnezzar then says, I've destroyed the flower of them all. Do you want me to massacre every last Jew? And with that, 268 years of bubbling the blood finally rests and then Nebuchadnezzar then has an insight he says this is one man who was murdered if blood can boil for 268 years because of one man's murder I wonder what the fate of somebody who kills 940,000 Jews I'm in trouble and with that, he has what's called hor tshuva. He has a fleeting thought of making chuva himself. And we know the story about And After all this takes place, the seed of chuva is planted in his mind. It doesn't activate, doesn't, doesn't germinate for a while. He eventually makes chuva. And according to one source, he actually converts. He later converts uh, and becomes, it becomes a big tzadik. But uh, that comes later. Um, stone and marble shouldn't burn. But Hashem makes miracles, and with the destruction of the first temple, stone and marble indeed burn. Captors, by the usual laws of warfare, usually spare the young and they spare the old. And again, the rules change in this particular battle. Jews of all ages, not everybody, but Jews of all ages are massacred without discrimination. When the Bavlim finally enter, this is the Gemara in Yuma, they finally enter the base of Mikdash. They find an unusual spectacle. The Kruvim... Are hugging one another. And it's odd and requires a lot of parshanut because it shouldn't be. Ordinarily, when Hashem you know what the Kruvim are on the base of Mikdash? When the Jews are doing Hashem's bidding and doing behaving ourselves, so the Kruvim are embracing. And when not, a sign of Hashem's displeasure is the Kruvim, this male and female angelic figures above the Aaron Kodesh, are, are apart. And so in theory, by the time of the Horban, when the Jews are definitely misbehaving, so you'd think, okay, you know, they should be apart. So what's the pshat? How do we understand that they're hugging? And in fact, when they come in, the Bavlis start making fun, looking this, look at this ridiculous figure of the man and the woman who are hugging themselves. And um, the rifa answers, the rifa explains, this mockery was part of the punishment. Hashem made them hug so that it would it would, it would arouse the mockery of the of the mitzrim. But others call it, and Rav Tatz brings this pshat down, Rav Akiva Tatz, he says like this, it's actually a chesed. What is Hashem showing us? That even in our lowest hour, Hashem is showing us, He'll never abandon us. Um, The temple is destroyed. We understand three reasons. Three reasons for the, the destruction. The Jews violated the cardinal sins, as we call them, idolatry, murder, and all the prohibitions having to do with modesty and immodesty. It was destroyed because the Jews had neglected the year, which is the ultimate act that showed, betrays Hashem's trust. That is a lack of bitachon. Because if Hashem says, don't work the land, I'll provide for you, and the Jews work the land anyway, it means that they feel they can get by without a Kodesh Baruch Hu. The causes are unambiguous. The destruction is... At this point, the worst event in history heretofore, as we said, the whole world was created for the base of Mikdash so that we should build Hashem's house and behave accordingly with the Shekhinah in our presence. And the world was, there was utter chaos. That's what consumes us at the moment, which we'll pick up with. the Rosh Hashem first thing tomorrow.